Good morning. Let's go over a couple of announcements together. This morning, Jared will be our speaker as pastor is uh, preaching for Pastor Loker at Schwartz Creek today. Our study tonight on the book of Ezra, 6 p.m., bring finger foods and lots of other treats. We need special music for the summer months, and if we're going to get that, we better hurry, <laughs> because I think choir starts tonight. We're supposed to. We'll see how things go. Okay. Uh, prayer meeting Wednesday evening, 7 p.m., the last Sunday evening of September 30th, which is next week, is music night. There's your chance to, to jump in and throw in some special music. Okay. <clears throat> Don't forget Andrea is our texting contact for any, anything that has any relevance to the prayer chain. And you have her number here. Item 8. Have you seen the church toolbox? A uh, little story here is that it has disappeared from the kitchen counter and has all the church tools inside. Mystery solved. It was inadvertently taken by one of the members and is now back in route to the church. And I understand there's no ransom to be paid. So that, that little deal has had everybody in a tizzy there for a while. Coming October 4th, Forgotten Man Ministries Banquet. Uh, please consider attending this. This is a, it is a ministry program. It is a form of missionary work that is vital to the community. I served as an associate chaplain for 15 years in Lapeer County Jail, and the rewards that I have felt and received for myself in ministering to the inmates is innumerable. Uh, you, you can't understand the impact that going in and bringing the word to the individuals incarcerated. Remember, the county jail is local. Most of the people that 
are in the county jail come from your community. They come from all the different towns within the county, for the most part. And at some point, these folks get released back into the population again. What better cause is there to go and have an impact for the cause of Christ on, the, on these inmates than to, to sponsor the work of the jail ministry? It's something really to be considered. So please, please think about that. Um, would ask that you take a look on the flip side all the prayer requests that are going on. Keep all these folks in your prayers. Consider that every morning. So, are there any other messages or information that I've not uh, have, Marcy? Uh, yeah, there is a sign-up sheet on the help board for um, the trip we're going to do to the orchard on October 12th. 12th? 13th? October thirteenth. Yeah, we just basically want to know how many are coming, so we need a group of at least ten or more, hopefully to get the group rate. So we would just like to know who's coming. Okay, ten or more. Yes. We would like everyone to come, but <laughs> Diane's not going to be there. She's going to be in Florida, probably. Well, everyone else. Then. <laughs> okay, everybody else. Okay. It's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that might be interesting. Okay, our scripture for meditation is Psalm 51.
Would you stand with us and agree in prayer? Brother Ken Jones, would you begin our worship this morning? Father, we come before you this morning, and as always when we gather, we, we gather in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes. The scripture tells us that indeed this is a day that the Lord has made, and we're, we're told to rejoice and to be glad in it. And Father, we ask you to help as we gather here this morning for praise and worship. Father, help us to never take for granted what, what you've given us here. Not just this church building, but uh, this group of believers, this, this church family. We're told to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. As we do that, we're able to rejoice with each other at times of blessings and console each other in times of trials and tribulation. We consider this a, a safe place. It's, it's like a safe harbor in a time of trouble or time, time of storm. It's like the city of refuge that is spoken of in, in the Old Testament where sinners were able to flee for safety and encouragement. We ask you to continue blessing through this church and the outreach, supply the spiritual needs, financial needs of this church. And Father, we thank you for the gift of faith this morning. And we know it is a gift. Scripture says that not all men believe, and we know that not everybody does believe, but you have given us the means to believe, and we thank you for that. And whether our faith is strong and robust, or, or at times perhaps it's weak and feeble, it is still faith. We thank you for that. In fact, it's a blessed thing to even just have an interest in the things of Christ, and we thank you for that, Lord. We ask your blessing on us here this morning as we gather. We do thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and for his redeeming work for us. And we pray that everything that's said and done here this morning will be pleasing in your sight. We just thank you and we pray in the precious name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Please remain standing. Good morning. Will you take your brown hymnals and turn to number 76 in the brown? 76.
Lewis. Mr. Lewis. It's number <coughs> 569 in the brown. 569 in the brown. This has a lot of different words in it, catchy phrases. <coughs> and it's an all around. You can think you can stay seated for this if you would like, but if you feel like the need to stand, that's fine too. <laughs>
we would all be marching along with him. Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Matthew 19, verses 23 through 30. Matthew 19, 23 through 30. If you'll kindly stand with us. And Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, all that the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sit on the glorious throne, you whom have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left house or brother or sister or father or mother or children or field for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last. Many who are last will be first. Take your brown hymnal again and turn to number 462, 462 in the brown.
morning. It's always neat <clears throat> to me how God works things out without my help. I don't know why I'm so uh, surprised by that. Just a minute. Um, but like, for instance, today, the hymn that was chosen for our congregational pick, the Battle Hymn of the Republic, we're going to mention that text in the, the sermon today. And I, what I think is so interesting about that hymn, by the way, and I think it's well chosen this morning, thank you, Ken, for that, is it's about Judgment Day. Did you read the words on that? What they're talking about? They're talking about the wine press of God's wrath pouring out. And the people, us, who are God's people, saying, glory, glory, hallelujah. People think that's some patriotic hymn. It is. It's good that our country does that. But it's about God. It's about a second coming. And the, the fury of God being poured out on mankind that terrible day, as it's talked about in Scripture. And we're going to talk about that this morning. And uh, I hope that it will stick in your mind. It's just amazing how God does things. I don't know why we're so amazed. We serve a tremendous God, do we not? Um, this title of this morning's message is Our Own Worst Enemy. And if I say that to you right now, you know what I'm talking about even before I start. I could ask you at this point, who is our own worst enemy? And you'd probably be able to say, me. I am my own worst enemy. So we'll talk about this today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your great providence and Lord, our feeble minds are amazed at times, Lord, where you come in and do something for us that we don't expect. And Lord, we should expect greatness from a great God. Forgive us when we don't recognize it. We pray this morning that you'll be with us as we look into the subject of ourselves. It's not good or easy, Lord, I should say, for us to have the microscope upon us. We become uncomfortable when we're examined. And I pray, Lord, that you will by your word, expose the deep darkness within us, show us what yet remains, and as the psalmist prayed, uh, that you would create in us a clean heart, one that desires to be like you. Pray now for your word to be honored this day, open our hearts, open our minds, and open my mouth. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. The last time I was able to preach, we started a small series concerning the dangerous enemies we face as Christians. Jesus told us in John 16, in this world, you will have trouble. And he was, of course, correct. Trouble comes to our souls in the forms of three main enemies, the world, the flesh, and Satan. The previous message dealt with the world... And today, we look at the enemy of our own flesh. And I'm sure you have heard the phrase that so-and-so is his own worst enemy. When we hear this phrase, we understand that the person in question does things that are counterproductive to themselves. They hinder their own progress by actions or by passive neglect. Either way, they can be identified as their greatest obstacle in achieving success. Brethren, in a much larger capacity, we are our own worst enemy. 
we conveniently like to provide excuses for our negligent behavior or lack of progress in all things spiritual, but the blame for our spiritual failures lies squarely at our own feet. Sure, the world and Satan may try to influence us, but it is we that make the decision to either obey or disobey. We prove daily that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Essentially, deep down in the core of who we are, we find embedded selfishness. Some people like to call this embedded selfishness self-preservation. And brethren, this term was designed to mask the true degree of our selfishness. Self-preservation equals me first. And ultimately, we all seem to understand this as reasoning for why people do what they do. And on a fundamental level, we understand that people may do something terrible in the name of self-preservation. A case in point. A man shoots and kills a robber that enters their home. It is later determined that the robber was completely unarmed and apparently had no intention of personally harming the homeowner. Now, my purpose is not to debate all the ins and outs of this situation, but most of us would side with the homeowner in this situation. The homeowner did not know the intentions of the intruder. All they knew is that someone was in their home that shouldn't have been. The potential for harm to oneself is a valid excuse and reason to shoot to kill with the idea of self-preservation. Imagine for just a moment a time and place where there is no question of intentions when someone enters your dwelling place. A time and place where there can be no potential for harm. You know, I'm afraid our selfishness that when confronted with the error of our actions or thinking, we instinctively play the blame game. And when we do so, we affirm our origins as descendants of fallen Adam and Eve. Just after they fell into sin, Genesis records their responses to God in chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree. And I ate. Brethren, our selfishness is so strong. I challenge you this morning to examine your motives for any of your actions. Everything we do benefits ourselves in some way or another. Are we nice to people? Why? Is it because we are genuinely concerned for their welfare? Possibly. But alongside of that semi-probable reason lies the other selfish reason of making us feel good while being nice. It makes me feel good to be nice to others. So foreign is the concept of complete sacrifice for the only and complete ultimate good of someone else with no benefit to ourselves. Most of us cannot fathom that sort of action. Imagine, if you will, a person who set aside all of their comforts and sense of personal self-preservation 
to sacrifice even their own life for the complete benefit of someone else. Some of us have been raised answering the questions of the Catechism of Westminster. The first question, what is the chief end of man? Answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This primary question rightly addresses our purpose, our very reason for existence. Brethren, we were designed to glorify God, not ourselves. How are we doing on that? I dare say we tend to glorify ourselves and fall directly into the condemnation of God towards sinful man. Romans 1, 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and the birds and animals and creeping things. Succinctly put, selfishness elevates the person into the reason for existence and subsequently robs God of his glory. And this, in essence, is idolatry. You and I are no God, yet we live like that is so. We have no right, being creatures that were created by him and for him, to live for ourselves. Our true purpose and reason for existence is found in him who made us. Now, how much of your life is my life about you? How much of your life is about God? Contrary to popular belief, our sin nature is something we are born with, not something we learn. People like to believe that we are born little clean slates, ready to be influenced and molded into the masterpiece of adulthood that we will be. While we certainly can and will be influenced by our surroundings and upbringing, we cannot become something beyond what our nature dictates. Psalm 51, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We come into this world as little sinners, and we grow up to be big sinners. There is no changing this apart from the grace of God. God addresses this in Jeremiah 13, verse 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. No creature can be different than the nature by which they were created. We cannot escape our nature on our own. We do not need to look too far for evidence of this truth. Our children show signs of their sin nature surprisingly early. If you examine the actions of a toddler, you'll find that the person that they are primarily concerned with is themselves. Try taking their bottle or their toy from them for a few moments and see what happens. Now, if your response is, well, you took something away from them. This was theirs. 
That's why they fuss and pout. Okay. Try sitting that toddler down next to another toddler. Give them both a toy and see what happens next. You know as well as I do that one of them or both of them will try to take the other one's toy away as well as keeping their own. Selfishness. A little while older and we will find them lying about their actions to keep themselves from being disciplined. With just honest observation, one might think that you trained your child to be selfish and to lie. I mean, how else would they have learned to do these things? And if you did teach them these things, what a tremendous disservice you have done to your child and society by raising such a reprobate. Here's the issue. Due to the all-encompassing universal commonality of this behavior, we as a race of people have come to accept this as something that is normal amongst our children. As much as birds instinctively fly through the air and fish instinctively swim in the water, humans instinctively sin. It is in our nature to do so. Yet our own sin nature blinds us to our true condition. We try to believe that we're actually pretty good, and we have to guard against becoming evil. Society tells us that our physical surroundings and our familial influences are our biggest variables that shape our goodness or lack thereof. It is imperative that we truly understand the importance of the nature of our enemy. Our selves are wicked by nature, and we are powerless to change our nature. Now, having understood this, why is this a problem? Well, Ephesians 2, the first three verses says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. I see several chilling reasons why having a sin nature is bad for us as humankind. First, God says through Paul that we are dead in our sin, meaning that there is no spiritual life. If there is no spiritual life, then following our physical deaths, there will not be any life awaiting us. Furthermore, because of our sin nature, God has marked us as children of wrath. People, we have no idea the scope of the wrath of God. We have little inclinations of it recorded in Scripture. The Old Testament has accounts of people becoming sick, being bitten by venomous snakes, being swallowed up from the ground, and of course the global flood of Noah's day that destroyed all life save the few that were in the ark. Even in our modern era, we see tornadoes wipe out homes, fires consume forests, earthquakes level cities to rubble, and hurricanes that bring intense flooding, wind damage, and decay and disease. And all the accounts of scripture and these modern disasters, the restraint of God is clearly seen. God displays his displeasure and brings judgment, but he does not destroy everyone. Friends, there is a time coming when God will not restrain his wrath anymore. There is a time coming when he will shake the earth 
like he has never done before. A day so terrible that the inhabitants of the earth will cry out for the rocks to fall on them to hide them from God. And although this day seems to be yet far off, I warn you today that you can and most likely will meet this angry and wrathful God before the advent of that day. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Concerning the actual day of judgment, Revelation 14, verses 14 through 20 says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. For the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. And so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. 1,600 stadia is about 184 miles. A horse's bridle stands about five feet off the ground. That is a lot of blood. This is a lot of people. And this is the end result of living for oneself. Crushed into oblivion, squashed with the others, whose amount of combined blood is unfathomable. One more thing. Although we need need no one to teach us how to sin, we surely invent ways to be wicked. Micah 2 verse 1. Woe to those who divide wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in the power of their hand. You know, we can still be shocked to hear of the wicked acts of our fellow human beings. The cruelties that we inflict on each other is amazing. But the days of Noah are coming again, and we certainly won't be surprised at people's sin, because it will be practiced everywhere. So now a few questions. Is there or has there been someone who has been legitimately good? If we are not good by nature, can we learn to be good? What exactly is this goodness I keep hearing about? Just how good is good? Well, for the first question, let's start at the very beginning. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 and verse 31. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. And so God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. So along with all of the rest of creation, God pronounced Adam and Eve good. At one point, mankind was legitimately good. But our goodness didn't last very long. Before the first child would arrive, Adam and Eve would fall into sin. Thus, their newly depraved nature would be passed on to every child that they would ever have, a never-ending stream of wicked people. I wonder what it would have been like to have been made perfect and totally good and then to fall. To have known perfection and true goodness and intimacy with God only to lose it. I believe that their lives following the fall were ones of tremendous regret. If you thought it would take a long time for mankind to develop wickedness apart from the goodness they came from, let me remind you of the story of Cain and Abel. One generation after Adam and Eve, Cain would commit the ultimate sin by human standards when he rose up and killed his brother Abel over envy. And as you can see, the descent into the abyss was immediate. Yet God provided sustaining grace for mankind that kept us from completely self-destructing. Mankind would continue to decline until the days of Noah when the inclination of everyone's hearts was only wicked all the time. Genesis 6, verse 5. After this reset of the human race, mankind once again began its march down into depravity. Along the way... God sent his perfect and holy son, Jesus Christ, as the second Adam, perfectly equipped to do the will of God the Father. And unlike Adam, he would not fail in being good. And it's at this juncture that we must talk about the origins of goodness. If mankind is not good, then it cannot be the origin of goodness. When God made the earth and everything in it, he pronounced it good. Therefore, goodness is a trait of God, and as such, it belongs to him. Being made in the image of God meant that we were made good. The fact that we rebelled against God demonstrated our lack of goodness in and of ourselves. When mankind sinned, we went against the goodness of God, and being contrary to the goodness of God is wickedness. If goodness was defined by mankind, then our rebellion against God would have been good. And this is one of our great misunderstandings. Deep down inside, all of us believe that we are somehow good. Have you ever heard someone say, I know there is good in him. We just have to dig a little deeper. Well, let me tell you, they will be digging forever and ever in search of a goodness that cannot be found. Let's look at a few texts. In Mark 10, 17 and 18, it says, And as he, that is Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now the implied idea here is that Jesus is actually good and therefore God. Pair that along with Romans 3, 10 through 12. None is righteous. No, not one. 
No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. When you read these texts and put them together, you must come to the realization that only God is good and no one else is. Now some might say, whose behavior is better than the behavior of other people and therefore can be categorized as good in comparison, then I am 100% flawlessly good, then I have to disagree. The standard for goodness is not a comparison between the best that we have to offer as mankind and the worst of us that has ever lived. No the standard for goodness is a complete and holy, perfect God. It is against his character and his standard that we have to reconcile our behavior in order to be pronounced good. Even people who do not believe in God would have to agree that no one is perfect. And by doing that, confirm that we are not the basis for goodness. I challenge you to rethink your ideas concerning what is good. Good belongs to God. If you are going to be good, you must be of God. God even commands this of us. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, 48. Brethren, this relative goodness that we hold to as our standard for conduct is so ingrained into the essence of who we are that it manifests itself in almost all of our ways. Because we cannot make something perfectly we make something that is inferior to perfection, but yet we pronounce it good enough. We have even designed machines that are able to make things even more precisely than we can make ourselves. And we are happy when the tolerances for error are low. But in an imperfect world, we can never achieve perfection. We must always settle for good enough. And I find it interesting that we always chase the standard of perfection or complete goodness, but never achieve it. We are always trying to make something that we know exists, but at the same time we realize we can never get there. Our pursuit of perfection proves divinity. Although we know this to be true about ourselves, for some reason we believe that it does not apply to our spiritual lives. If perfection or complete goodness is not achievable in our daily physical activities, what makes us think that it is possible for us to achieve in our spiritual lives? This, brethren, is the problem with the idea of letting your conscience be your guide. You cannot trust yourself to make good choices. You cannot trust yourself because you are not as good as God is good. I often think about Moses, Isaiah, Daniel, and John. These men were allowed to see a glimpse of God's glory. And I want to look at Moses and Isaiah's accounts, but I encourage you to look up Daniel and John. Exodus thirty-three, eighteen, following, Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, 
And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. Moses' account is interesting because earlier in the chapter, God says of Moses that he had found favor in his sight, and yet he is not allowed to see the face of God. And this tells us that even the best of us on earth cannot look upon God. Its very idea is found in Isaiah's account. Isaiah 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. I wonder if we'd think that we'd, what our reaction would be if we encountered the Lord God seated upon his throne. I believe we think too highly of ourselves and too less of God. So what is the problem with us and ourselves? Why are we so, our own worst enemies? Well, we have already looked at the enemy of the world, and we will eventually look at our last enemy of our souls, Satan. Their influences and offerings to us are dangerous to our soul. However, if we were perfect, there would be no danger. I want you to consider with me the temptation of Jesus Christ. Matthew 4 records, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. You know, a lot of people have written about the kinds of temptations that Jesus encountered from Satan. They've analyzed every facet of it. But what I find is amazing is the fact that there was no chance of his failure. Had the tempter come to me and offered me just one of those temptations that he offered to Jesus, I would have failed miserably. I dare say we all would have failed. If only if one's goodness supersedes all human goodness, only if one's goodness is perfect like God's, truly only God could resist the temptations that Jesus faced. Brethren, the problem is this. The world speaks our native language because we were born here and we were raised here. Satan speaks our native language because he is the ruler of this world. And when our hearts hear our native tongue, we are often quick to respond. The sirens of wickedness sing out. The music appeals to us and we follow to our detriment. And we are not neutral in this war. We have sided in our disobedience against God, and we have sided with the world and with Satan, and we are not victims. We are willing participants in active rebellion against holy God. I wish that our, our conversion, we would no longer be able to hear the call of the sirens, but that is not so. No, at our conversion, God creates a new heart within us, and we become a hybrid creature, our physical bodies used to contain a wicked soul, and together they would work in harmony. And following our conversion, we now have a holy soul living in a depraved and decaying body, and they are at opposition with one another. I think it important to note here the order of death that Adam and Eve experienced. They lost their spiritual lives first and lost their physical lives many years later. After we are saved, we gain a new spiritual life and must wait for our new physical bodies to follow. Before God saved us, we were at peace within our being, in our wickedness. Following salvation, we are at war with ourselves, and we wait for our new bodies so we can be at peace again. Consider the plight of Paul in Romans 7. Verses 14 and following reads, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. 
So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. My friends, we have been called to a fight, if at least in this world. There is a war within that wages on and on between our remaining putrid flesh and the Spirit of God. We must remain ever vigilant against the appeals of the world and the response of our flesh. Part of us wants to disobey, and part of us wants to obey. Our job is to master the flesh, to crucify it, and to choose the right when presented with the wrong. This is not easy, but this is what we have been called to do. Galatians 2, 19 and 20. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So what is the solution? Is this warfare between the flesh and the spirit going to last forever? In Genesis 6, verse 3, God says, The Lord says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. Brethren, the solution is simple. We have to die. So much of our identity is found in our physical bodies. Our faces, fingerprints, body shape, gender, skin color, etc. They are unique to us. People recognize me when they see me, as they probably do to you as well. If I commit a crime and leave my fingerprints at the scene, the police will find me. Sometimes I can be recognized by simply hearing my voice. I would imagine that those who know me best would be able to recognize me by my profile alone. All of this is part of my physical being. But I venture to you this morning that this is not the real me. Who I am is yet to be revealed. There is a deposit on me in the form of the Holy Spirit that guarantees what is to come. There are glimpses of this person that can be observed not by physical characteristics, but by my inward character. This is true of any believer. In Galatians 5, we are introduced to the list of character traits of the Spirit of God. In addition, we are also alerted to the list of things that are not from the Spirit of God, but of the flesh. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For, those, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. I said a few moments ago that the solution to our struggle with the flesh was simple and that we must die. This was both talking about the war with the flesh and its desires as well as our actual physical death. 
Paul, under inspiration, says in 1 Corinthians 15, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that it is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one of, of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust, and as of the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man in heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Are you afraid to die? Are you unwilling to lose what has been such a great part of who you have been in this life because you love yourself too much? Do you exclude yourself from sacrifice to God? And if so, you may belong to this group of people outlined in 2 Timothy 3, the first five verses. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. This is not a nice list to be associated with, I think. Here are some more admonitions for us to consider. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, Matthew 10, verse 39. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? For what shall a man give in return for his soul? Matthew 16, 25 and 26. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. John 15, verse 20. Brethren, we are going to die, every one of us. It cannot be stopped because God has appointed a time for each one of us in our departure. 
God has given us a temporary body to use in his service while we remain here. Part of God's purpose for it, that is your body, is to be mortified, to be put to death. Hebrews 10, 5 through 7. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. What exactly was the will of God concerning his uniquely begotten son? God prepared a body for him so that he could walk among men, reveal the Father by teaching, and suffer the scourging of Roman guards, and ultimately be nailed naked to a wooden pole for all of Jerusalem to gawk and cheer. This was the purpose of our master's body. As we are his servants, we should expect the same. God has a purpose for you and your body. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. For those among us who do not know Jesus Christ as Savior, there is no conflict within. Your soul and your flesh are equally happy here in this world. The world welcomes you with open arms. The world loves you as one of its own. And you happily reside within the kingdom of Satan, and all is well, seemingly, with your soul. The only problem is that there is a ruler of this world that answers to a much greater ruler. And that greater ruler is angry with you because of your rebellion against him. He has sent his only son to provide a way to be reconciled with him. And you have spurned his sacrifice saying that you're not so bad. You have declared that you will not have him as king. God's patience has an end. His wrath is building towards the day, uh, towards unbelievers on this, of this day of judgment. And in one day, the cup of his wrath is going to overflow. How will it go for you on that day? You who have made every decision you've ever made about yourself. You who have placed yourself in the place of worship over the God who made you. You who believe that you exist solely for your own benefit not realizing that there, you have an actual purpose in God's plan. What will you say in defense when you are called to account for the way you have lived your life? How will you answer the question, what have you done with my son, Jesus Christ? Will you find that your purpose is to glorify God by being welcomed into his family? Or will you find that your purpose is to glorify God by being one of the countless grapes stomped underfoot in his terrible winepress of wrath? Either way, God gets the glory from your life, whether you want him to or not. Make peace with God. God says in 1 John 1, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Confess to God what he already knows about you. 
Confess that you are a sinner in need of salvation and grace. Humble yourself before God. James 4, 6 through 10. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. For everyone here today, Christian or not, our own goodness or righteousness is not enough to save us. We need a better goodness, a better righteousness. We need the righteousness of God himself. Jesus said of the scribes and Pharisees of his day, who were as humanly good as they possibly could be in observing God's law, that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. For those of us who claim to be Christians, if you are at peace with yourself, if you cannot sense the war anymore, this should be a cause for great alarm. In our history as a country, the communists of the USSR after realizing that they could not win the arms race with us, told us that they would conquer us from within. This is the tactic of the world, the flesh, and Satan. If we find ourselves at peace with the world, if we sense no conflict between the flesh and the spirit that resides within us, then we may have been conquered from within. Jesus told us that in this world we would have trouble. Is this true? Is your life a life of trouble? Do you struggle against the flesh? Do you long for the conflict to be over, to be at home with Jesus Christ, to be finally united in body and spirit in holiness? Brethren, the longer I live on this wicked sphere, the more I want to leave it. And you should not assume that that statement is a death wish. You should understand that it comes from an alien living in a faraway place who is tired of contending with a culture that is contradictory to his nature. I don't fit in here. I grow weary with constantly falling short before my God. I pray daily that I would not do things that would make my Savior ashamed of my conduct, and yet I do so daily. Oh, to be with Jesus Christ, perfect before him, never to disappoint him again, is this the ache of your heart today? Do you long to be with Jesus? Or are you still trying to make this world your home? If you are a true child of God, you will find no peace here. You may marry the love of your life, build a house, have a big family who loves you, save for retirement, take relaxing walks along the beach. But the luster of this world will continue to fade, and you will find no joy in its offerings. Earlier we read from Romans 7. Let's continue reading on for just a bit. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Lastly, we are to actively put on the new self inwardly while we wait for our outward dressing. Colossians 3 If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the Father, through him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for not leaving us unto ourselves, for coming and providing a way to be with you. Lord, I think often that we we think too highly of ourselves. I think too highly of myself. 
We trust in all sorts of things here, here, Lord, and the reality is it's you. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to see ourselves in the light of your word. And when we look into that mirror, um, it's not going to be a pretty picture. And I pray, Lord, that we're, as we're admonished in James, that we'll remember. Thank you for Jesus Christ and his holiness. Thank you for goodness, how we wait for the day where we will be completely good. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Our last hymn is 364. 364 in the brown hymnal.
Bill, would you close us in prayer today? Father of heaven, again, we are so grateful that you've allowed us to congregate together with your called out children, as your servants, as your brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the message today. We hope, Lord, that it pierces the hearts of the lost and reconvicts the hearts Spirit, with the media, commune with us, guide us.